0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 21. We'll continue our series through the book of Acts. We're over two-thirds done with it, so maybe by 2025 we'll have finished it. Um, Hopefully it doesn't take that long. Uh, The the rest of it will go by uh, quickly, I think. But Acts chapter 21. Before we begin, um, ho- raise your hand if you've ever seen a, 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 a Facebook post or a, a news article or something like that along these lines. Th- uh, on average, a human being swallows four spiders in their sleep every year. Has anyone ever seen that? that that's disgusting, isn't it, when you think about that? The problem with that is uh, that's a completely made-up, Study. It's a completely made-up number. Uh, I saw at one point that that story was put out uh, not because it was a, an accurate study on spiders and how we like to swallow them in our sleep, but to see how fast information can spread across the Internet, right? And we've all seen that, so we've all seen just how fast even a false story can spread, uh, and this is how things are. Human We as sinful human beings are very quick not only to tell lies, but also to believe lies. Uh, that's just the reality, and like I said, this, uh, y- you can take that times a thousand with the internet where we are constantly flooded with all kinds of information and all kinds of things all the time, and come to think of it, I saw, it was on the internet that I saw that that study was put out as a fraud, so who knows if that's even true, Um <laughs> Maybe we do swallow four spiders every, uh, every year in our sleep. Who knows? Uh, who's to say? But that's the reality. Lies spread like fire. James tells us uh, that it, we put bits into a horse's mouth, the, uh, uh, m- horse's mouth so that they will obey us. We direct their entire body as well. Ships, similarly, they have, uh, they're driven by great winds uh, but are directed by a very small rudder. And he goes on and then he says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things, and see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. All it takes is, you know, we're hearing all kinds of stories about uh, the fires happening in Hawaii, All it takes is one small spark, one small match, one small little brush fire for a whole forest to be engulfed. And similarly, all it takes is one lie to turn an entire city, an entire state, an entire country over on its head. And we see that the enemies of the faith will often utilize lies in order to destroy the faith. Now think about it, the enemies of the Christian faith don't run around telling the truth about what we believe. Uh, look at those those horrible Christians. They just want to love everyone, and they want everyone to be in a right relationship with God. Uh, they want everyone to have the peace that is found through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's no, that's not what the enemies of the faith are running around saying. It's usually something along the lines of, "Look at those horrible evil bigots, thinking they're the only ones who are right, uh, thinking they're so self righteous, up on their high horses." That's usually what we hear. The enemy is the father of lies, and he uses lies uh, even in our day to attack the faith and to attack those who are part of it. And in this section in the book of Acts that we're going to look at, we will see how the enemies of the Apostle Paul, and not just the enemies of the Apostle Paul, but the enemies of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, utilized a lie in order to set the entire city of Jerusalem in an uproar. But as we're reading this, we'll also be reminded that even in the midst of lying lips and slander, God is at work in all things accomplishing his purposes even through these sinful actions. So turn with me to Acts chapter 21 and we'll start reading in verse 27. Acts chapter 21, verse 27. Now when the seven days were almost over, The Jews from Asia, upon noticing him in the temple, began to throw all the crowd into confusion and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches to everyone everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred, and the people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound in two chains and began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he had got to the stairs, he actually was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then are you not the Egyptian who some time ago raised a revolt? and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have to dig into your word, to see the history of how your gospel, the good news of your son, spread throughout the world, and we see the many trials and tribulations that those who first brought the gospel forth had gone through. We're thankful that we come here because of the blood of the martyrs, because of the uh, courage of men like the Apostle Paul and others who, against all odds, against all challenges, were willing to take that gospel out. And we're thankful that we are recipients of it. Uh, I pray that we would learn from the courage that we see in the Apostle Paul. I pray that we would recognize that you are at work even amongst uh, this uh, this great evil that is carried out against your servant. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so to bring us back to what was going on in the book of Acts, if... You remember we find the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem. Things for the past couple chapters had been leading up to Paul going to Jerusalem. And Paul anticipated nothing but suffering and torment when he arrived there. But he knew that that is where God was directing him. Uh, Paul hoped to reach Jerusalem by the time of the Passover. And when Paul arrived at Jerusalem, he was met with the the Christian church in Jerusalem. Paul is in the temple now because he is uh, completing a period of ceremonial cleansing. And he is doing this along with four other Jewish Christians. There was a great concern that, uh, the, uh, among the Jewish Christians that Paul was going around telling Jewish Christians to no longer observe the law or no longer to observe the customs. And we discussed this a little bit last time. Uh, And Paul did not want that rumor going about. He did not want to be viewed as anti-Jewish in his Christianity. He uh, went along with the instructions of the elders in the church and he paid for the offerings of these four men who are completing a vow, uh, perhaps the Nazarite vow, and also purified himself in the temple. And this is a purification of about seven days. So Paul is doing this act, an act that is in solidarity with the Jewish Christian brothers who is concerned. The Apostle Paul taught in in his letter to the Corinthians, Though I am free from all men, I made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law... Though, my, though not being under law myself, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those without law, as without, uh, as without law. To those not being without the law, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all means I might save some." I do this for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker in it. So Paul, in this action, is not compromising the gospel, but what he is doing is he is subjecting himself to these things. He has the freedom to do so in order to maintain peace, in order to maintain unity, while Paul taught in many places that there is freedom from these ceremonial aspects of the law and He also recognized that there's freedom for these Jewish Christians to continue in them so long as they are not compromising the gospel of grace. And there are similar things that we might do in our day, certain practices that we might normally follow or certain customs that we might not normally observe, right? And we recognize that there is Christian liberty, there is Christian freedom in these things, we have freedom to practice or not practice certain customs. Uh, for example, there are some Christians who, uh, upon entering a church building or upon completing or starting a prayer, may cross themselves. And we, would, we might look at that and say, oh, I'm not so sure about that, but we can recognize that there is freedom to do so. Uh, similarly, there are certain Christians who may observe certain days and other Christians who don't. How many of you enjoy celebrating holidays, right? And how many of you, like me, could care, couldn't care one way or the other, right? There's Christian liberty to do these things. And in the same way, uh, Paul recognized uh, this liberty that they had. Uh, and just as uh, we should not impose on our own brothers and sisters certain restrictions that the scriptures do not give, we should also be careful not to impose freedoms as well and that 's what Paul was seeking to avoid, seeking to avoid offense by imposing certain freedoms on these Jewish Christians freedoms that uh, they did not have to indulge in so uh, but that 's why we find the apostle Paul in, t- in the temple he 's Paul, the Jew, being a Jew, doing what Jews do. Uh, but while he is in the temple, when the seven days were almost over, Jews from Asia noticed him there. Now remember the time period. This is at the time of Pentecost. So Jerusalem would have been filled from Jew- by Jews from all over the world. It is, remember, it is Pentecost when the gospel first went out in Jerusalem. And during that time, Jerusalem was filled with Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. So the city is just packed full So, uh, and it's no wonder that there are Jews from these cities that Paul had uh, visited at certain points of time. But Paul, wasn't, uh, he wasn't the most friendly with many of the Jews. It was Paul's custom when he went on his missionary journey to first go to the synagogue, proclaim the gospel to them, but he would inevitably be rejected by them where he would then turn to the Gentiles. So now Paul returns to Jerusalem and these Jews that had rejected him are there right along with him. And certain Jews from Asia recognized him. They noticed him in the temple, and these are opponents of Paul, so they begin to throw the crowd in confusion and lay hands on him. These Jews were likely from Ephesus, and they had spotted the apostle in the city with Trophimus, the Ephesian, a Gentile, uh, who had come with Paul. Perhaps this Trophimus was one of the representatives of the Gentile churches that had contributed to a gift in Jerusalem, that the Apostle Paul was bringing him. So these are the ones, these are uh, perhaps the very same Jews that Paul encountered earlier on and plotted against him in Ephesus. Uh, Paul had, had to escape from death many times throughout his ministry, and oftentimes that death would have come at the hands of the people of Israel who were rejecting the message of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, in speaking to the Ephesian elders, said this. You know yourselves from the day that I first set foot in Asia, how I was, I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And perhaps it's these same Jews that had plotted against him in Asia, in Ephesus, who now see him and they see an opportunity to do what they were unable to do in Asia, and that, and that is to put him to death. So, and that's what they do. They begin to stir up the crowd and they begin to lay these charges against the apostle. They cry out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches to everyone everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. So these are the charges that are brought against him. One, that he is preaching against the people of Israel. We know that this is not true. We see, even in the book of Romans, the great love that the apostle has for his brethren according to the flesh. For for Israel, in Romans chapter 9, he says to them, "...I am telling the truth in Christ." I am not lying, and my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. To whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. So he's saying, I love my brethren who are of Israel so much that I could wish myself accursed for their sakes. So it is obviously not true that the Apostle Paul is going out and preaching against the people. Of Israel. But that's the charge that's laid against him. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people. And perhaps uh, they viewed Paul in this way because of his acceptance of the Gentiles. Because we remember when he is rejected by the synagogues, he eventually goes to the Gentiles. He is recognized as the apostle to the Gentiles. And while serving and ministering among the Gentiles, he uh, he is free to live and act as a Gentile. But this would have been a uh, this would have been seen perhaps by the Jews who had rejected him as a repudiation of Judaism as a whole, and uh, there is a rumor now that is going around. <coughs> Uh, That the Apostle Paul is preaching against the Jewish people. And this rumor had even gotten to the Christians who are in Jerusalem. Remember, the very reason that Paul was in the temple to begin with is because of the unfounded rumor that he was teaching Jewish Christians to forsake the customs, to, to no longer be Jews. Uh, and uh, Paul goes to the temple in order to basically say, that's not what I'm saying, and in fact, I'm going to do what Jews do, and I'm going to go, uh, I'm gonna go uh, uh, be cleansed in the temple. So this is completely unfounded, and it's unfounded by the fact that Paul is even in the temple. Another charge that they bring up against the Apostle Paul is that he is preaching against the law and against the temple, And this isn't the first time we've heard this charge brought up against a Christian. In fact, earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6, we remember the ministry of Stephen, One of the seven, we might call them deacons, who were selected to help in the serving of the food. And Stephen was mighty in the Holy Spirit, and he would go around, and he would debate in the synagogues. The synagogue of the freedmen is where he was at, and they were unable to handle his arguments. And because they were unable to handle his arguments, they came up with slanderous lies against him in order to uh, hopefully put him to death. And what they did in Acts chapter 6 was put forward false witnesses who said, This is the man who incessantly speaks against this holy place and against the law. So the very same charge that was brought against Stephen is now being brought against the Apostle Paul when there may be a hint of irony there, especially considering that the Apostle Paul was present during the stoning of Stephen and he stood by with approval. Uh, So perhaps at one point in his life, Saul is willing to look at Stephen and say, oh yes, preaching against the law, preaching against the temple, comes to repentance and faith in Christ and now that very same charge is being laid up against him. But again, we know that the very fact that Paul was in the temple at this time, purifying himself and paying for the vows of the other men, shows that this was a lie. Uh, but here's the big one, and this is the death penalty lie. Uh, this is the death penalty offense that they bearing against the Apostle Paul. That he is defiling the temple by, uh, by bringing a Greek into it. And besides, we read, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So the charge is Paul is bringing Gentiles into the temple, this place where only the covenant people of God, the people of Israel, belong. And this would have been a very serious charge. And if this was true, this would have even brought the death penalty against the apostle Paul. Now, in the temple, on the temple mount, there were different courts where different people were allowed in. On the very outer court of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were allowed there, uh, the God-fearing Gentiles who would come and offer worship to God. But that's all the further they were allowed. Going further in, you have the court of the women where the Jewish women were allowed, and then the court of the men, and then finally the court of the priests, Uh, However, Gentiles were not allowed inside the temple. That was not their place. And this was very strictly enforced in that day. Gentiles were not allowed to go beyond the court of the Gentiles under pain of death. In fact, uh, we actually have some archaeological discoveries at the ruins of the temple of signs warning Gentiles against going even further. There are two inscriptions that were found in the ruins of the temple, and they read this way. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for what follows, death. So this was a capital offense in the people of Israel for a Gentile to be brought into the temple. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, this law was upheld by the Romans and it was even applied to Roman citizens. So Roman citizens, very protected class of people, even they weren't safe from being put to death if they transgressed that holy place. So for Paul to aid a Gentile, in entering the temple, would have brought about that offense. And that is why they bring that charge against him. Now, once again, as I said, this charge is completely untrue. What's this charge based on? Is it based on the fact that as Paul was there kneeling and uh, offering praise to God, that there was a Gentile sitting right next to him that he had somehow snuck in? No, it's not based on that at all. We read that they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they had supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And that's all they really need. Uh, that's all the evidence that they need. Well, Gentiles with him, so obviously he's in the temple. Uh, where is that Gentile now? Well, I don't know, but he was with Paul, so therefore Paul is to be put to death. So we see here the goal is not ultimately to discover the truth and carry out justice. They already know what they want. They want a dead Paul. And this is the easiest way in their mind to bring that about. If we can get enough people riled up at the fact that he has desecrated the temple by doing this, whether it actually happened or not, because it doesn't matter whether or not it actually happened. What matters is whether or not people believe it happened. So if we can get enough people to believe that this happened, then we can finally get rid of this rabble-rouser, the Apostle Paul. So here we have another instance in the New Testament where a false testimony is used in an attempt to secure the deaths of those who are following Christ. And notice, this is all under the guise of serving God. What's the claim? Oh, we must honor God. We must honor the temple, and he refused to do so. So we must honor God by putting him to death. And that's how so many people will often justify so many evil actions in this world. This is a very common thing that we see in the New Testament. Uh, The Lord Jesus himself even warns that this kind of behavior will happen. In John chapter 16, when Jesus is speaking with the disciples, he says that they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering his service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. So here we have a mob of ravenous uh, Israelites seeking to put Paul to death thinking that in doing so they are serving God. But the ultimate verdict that Jesus gives them is they do these things because they have not known the Father and they have not known me. And that is how so many evil actions even today are justified in this world. People use religious beliefs to justify all kinds of evil actions and they will claim that in carrying these evil actions out they are glorifying God. I'm sure we all remember what happened uh, 22 years ago at this point, September 11th, 2001. We have in the news in all of our faces a horrible tragedy, an evil, wicked act where radical Islamist uh, terrorists hijack planes, crash them into buildings, and why? Because in doing so, they believe they're glorifying God. Now, is that the truth? Of course not. But the human sinful heart will find any excuse that it can to carry out its sinful desires. And it will be all the more zealous to do so if that heart can justify itself in claiming some kind of religious reason for doing these things. We even see this in the death of the Lord Jesus. But this is the charge that's brought against the Apostle Paul that he's bringing Greeks into the temple to defile this holy place, not doing it on the basis of fact, not doing it because they actually saw a Greek in the temple, but they had all the evidence they they needed when they saw Trophimus, even outside the temple with the Apostle Paul. And we see how quickly this lie spreads in verse 30. Then all the city was stirred, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. The entire city becomes provoked. We can almost picture it. People, uh, as the news is being called out, a Gentile was brought into the temple. A Gentile was brought into our holy place. And remember, this is the time of the Passover where everyone is there so that they can offer their worship to God. Uh, And now they're hearing, this is being disrupted by this evil act. And guess who the one doing it is? It's Saul of Tarsus, that traitor, that one who's joined those uh, radical followers of jesus the nazarene he's been causing trouble for us throughout the world and now he is here and look at what he's done time to put him down forever so the city so we can picture people just flooding out of their houses rushing to the temple uh, and as often the case as often as, as it is in the case of mobs this was not a mob that was formed on the basis of fact but this was a mob that was formed on a lie A lie that had spread among people who were all too eager to use any excuse they could to carry out this violent act. Uh, Luke tells us that the entire city was thrown into an uproar. People are pouring out of their houses upon hearing that Paul had desecrated the temple in such a way. Now, it goes without saying, but scripture, of course, condemns all kinds, uh, every form of mob justice. And we, even as followers of the Lord Jesus, need to be careful, especially in the age of so much false information that is out there, in the age of uh, people demanding an emotional response to every news story that we see. We as Christians need to be careful that we're not carried away by a popular lie that has made its way around the world before the truth has had time to put on its shoes. The book of Exodus says this, "'You shall not bear a false report. "'Do not join your hand with a wicked man "'to be a malicious witness. "'You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, "'nor shall you testify in a dispute "'so as to turn aside after a multitude "'in order to pervert justice, "'nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute.'" I and mean, We live in a world where there is immediate partiality with everything that we see. We saw that very clearly in the summer of 2020, didn't we? Before, even before all the facts were out, we see one horrific video and we can recognize, yeah, it was a horrific video. What happened there was not a good thing. But immediately we come to all kinds of conclusions that we never should have come to and we see cities burning down as a result, and the truth at that point, no matter what happened, has no chance of really coming to light because people already decide what they want to believe. And that's how things can be. If we want to believe something, we'll use whatever excuse we have to believe it. And G- and uh, the Lord in the scriptures say, you shall not do that. You must be impartial. And that's not what this mob was doing This mob hears what they wanted to hear. They knew who Paul was. They had already decided in his mind he's a bad guy. So as soon as they hear an excuse to carry out action against him, they begin to do so. And Paul is dragged out of the temple with the intent, and the intent is to have him put to death. And then Luke tells us, and immediately the doors were shut. And uh, the shutting of the temple doors, I think, carries not only some, uh, you know, it's significant because they're shutting the doors to Paul. They no longer want it allowed. But I think there's even some symbolic significance in this statement that the temple doors are shut. Because what does this represent? Well, one author says this. uh, Believing all things which are written in the... that The Apostle Paul, believing all things which were written in the law and the prophets... And having committed nothing against the people or customs of his fathers, uh, and his creed is forced from its proper home. So what's the Apostle Paul doing? Remember, was the Apostle Paul doing anything against the temple, doing anything against the law? No, the Apostle Paul believed the things that he believed about Jesus because he believed what the scriptures had said. Christianity is not out of line with what, the New Te- with what the Old Testament teaches. In fact, it's the fulfillment of it. Paul is the only one in that temple structure who is offering proper worship to the one true God through the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing his sacrifice for sins. But now, what do they do? They cast him out of the temple. They ultimately reject that message, and they close the doors on it forever forever the new covenant that we see inaugurated through the blood of Christ that we see uh, opening up in a very significant way. Remember what happened at the death of Jesus. The veil of the temple torn in two from top to bottom, right? Uh, Signifying the free entry into God's presence through Christ. This new covenant that we see inaugurated is ultimately rejected By the Jews in Jerusalem as they closed the doors of the temple to the apostle and the message that he proclaimed. They have put the final nail in the coffin of their rejection. And in fact, this is the last that we will see of the temple in the New Testament. And the temple at this point in time is awaiting a destruction that will take place in less than 15 years after this event, just as the Lord Jesus had foretold. In Luke chapter 21, we read, While some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, Jesus said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. The door closes to the gospel, and God's wrath then falls on it. So we continue reading in verse 31. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. So we remember at this time that Jerusalem is under Roman control. And something that the Romans were at least good at, we can fault them for many things, but something that they were good at Uh, to some degree, was maintaining a a certain level of peace. Romans didn't want cities erupting in chaos, the cities that were under their control. So we see the Romans uh, in their controlled provinces, they sought to maintain peace. And there was actually a fort that was built right off of the temple. Uh, If you have your uh, maps in the back of your Bible, uh, maps of Jerusalem, maybe later on you can go look at that. Look at the Temple Mount and then uh, in the uh, corner you'll see that there's a temple er, or a fort called Antonia Fortress built just off the temple in the northeast corner. And stationed at this fortress was a cohort of Roman soldiers consisting of a thousand men who could quickly be deployed to take control of situations such as this. So the commander, who will be later uh, identified as Claudius Lysias, acts quickly when he hears word that the city is in an uproar. And he takes two centurions with him, so perhaps uh, at least 200 soldiers. A centurion uh, was, or or he takes a couple of centurions, at least two of them. A centurion was in charge of a hundred soldiers, hence where we get the word century, right? Uh, Century is 100 years, centurion's in charge of a 100 soldiers. So he takes a couple centurions with him, and he goes down, arriving just in time to keep the Apostle Paul from being beaten or stoned to death. And here we have the fulfillment of what uh, Agabus had previously told Paul that Paul would fall into the hands of the Gentiles. So Paul falls into the hands of the Roman soldiers. At once, uh, he took soldiers and centurions and ran down. When they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him in order that he be bound with two chains and began asking who he was and what he had done. So bound in two chains, probably one soldier on either side. Uh, Remember several chapters ago, Peter, when he was arrested and about to be put to death, he was in a similar situation where he had two soldiers on either side, bound with two chains, ensuring that he could not escape. Uh, This commander at this point, remember, has no idea what was going on. But the commander's goal wasn't necessarily to rescue Paul. Uh, he, you don't arrive at a scene, see this guy, see the city in an uproar over this guy and immediately assume, oh, that must be the good guy. We better stop them. Uh, no, you show up to the scene and we just need to calm everyone down. And there may be a reason that this guy is getting the snot beat out of him. So he has him put in chains. He has him, uh, rescued from death. Uh, not, like I said, not necessarily his goal, but he stops this potential riot that's about to take place. And we remember what Agabus said, that he's going to be bound and he's going to be put into the hands of the Gentiles. And now Paul, at this point in time, just like Jesus, James, and Peter before him, was now at the mercy of the Gentile soldiers who were in Jerusalem. And we... Through our hindsight, we know what happens. Uh, We've all probably read the book of Acts. We know that he makes it to Rome. But at this point in time, the apostle Paul didn't know that. Uh, So we can only imagine what may be going on in his mind. Paul, at this point, had no guarantee of his safety or of just treatment. He had no guarantee that he was going to get out of this situation alive, and he probably had no reason to believe that that was going to happen. Remember the Lord Jesus, he was put to death at the behest of an angry crowd, despite the fact that there was no real justification to do so. We remember James, the brother of the Lord, was put to death by Herod Antipas at that point in time, and the crowd celebrated that fact, and as a result, Herod Antipas had Peter arrested, and he was hoping to do the same thing with him. And now Paul, who was hated by all in Jerusalem, was in the hands of the Gentiles, and the only expectation that he had is that he would suffer for the sake of Christ. But by God's grace, we see that the soldiers do not allow the mob to carry out uh, these actions. The centurion, he's unable to uh, determine who Paul is, Uh, and in asking the crowd, he's unable to get a clear answer. Uh, In this case, so Paul is unable to know who he is, and he begins to ask the crowd, who is this man? And because the crowd, they're there on the basis of a lie, most of them probably didn't even know the story behind it, so he's not able to get a clear answer as to why Paul was being beaten. He had no way to prove that he had done anything worthy of death or anything like that. Right, and it's similar to what we see with Jesus. Uh, So we see uh, he he, he's trying to get the facts straight, but he's unable to do so. The crowd they just want him dead, and it's the same with Jesus. Remember when they brought Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate said, "All right, what are the charges?" And uh, instead of laying down a legitimate charge, they said, "Well, uh, we wouldn't have brought him here if he didn't do something worthy of death." Right? So it's like, well, j- just just kill him for us is what they want. And that's what this crowd wants too. Just kill him for us. We wouldn't be beating him down if he didn't deserve it, uh, though this Roman could not figure out what was going on. And due to the uproar, Paul needed to be carried up the stairs to the barracks. And this would have been quite the humiliating thing, right? Uh, j- just picture this grown man being lifted up by soldiers to be carried up the stairs. Uh, Paul uh, can probably add this to his list of uh, events that happened in his life that keep him humble. Right in uh, Second Corinthians, he talks about all these uh, bad, embarrassing, sad things that happened to him. Things that he said God allowed these to happen so that I can stay humble, so that I can't exalt in myself. Uh, one of these things is I had to be lowered out of a city in a basket right? Uh, And now he'll be able to add, I had to be carried uh, over the heads of two soldiers in order to be rescued from a crowd. And uh, so the the Romans are trying to figure out what was going on, and the multitude of people kept following, shouting, away with him. And this we see another parallel uh, with what happened with the Lord Jesus, where they just continually shouted, away with him, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. This crowd wanted his blood. So we finish up this section, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought to the barracks, he said to the commander, "'May I say something to you?' And he said, "'Do you know Greek?' "'Then are you not the Egyptian who at some time ago raised a revolt "'and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out of the wilderness?' So uh, Paul speaks to this man in Greek, which may have been a surprise. Remember, he's in Jerusalem filled with Aramaic-speaking Jews. Greek was the lingua franca of the time of the Roman Empire, but Jerusalem uh, mostly spoke in Aramaic. And here's this man being beaten down speaking in Greek. And uh, the, the soldier, the commander, uh, believes at this point that Paul is perhaps a known terrorist who had recently attacked the temple. Uh, the Egyptian who led 4,000 men into the wilderness. And this is another account that we find a history for. Josephus tells us about this Egyptian man. He claimed to be a prophet, and he said that he was going to tear down the walls of Jerusalem and that he was going to uh, lay siege over the city. Well, uh, that didn't happen. He was, uh, his, his army was put down by the Romans. Uh, a number of them were killed. A number of them were captured. But the Egyptian himself escaped the fight, and he didn't appear anymore, and he brought 4,000 men with him. So as this had happened just recently, perhaps the centurion thought, oh, he came back to do the job. But as we know, that's not the case. Paul identifies himself Uh, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a uh, a citizen of no insignificant city. Uh, He identifies himself. He shows that, no, I'm not a threat. I'm not this terrorist that you're looking for. Uh, I'm a man. I'm I'm from this prominent Roman city. I have nothing against what you guys are doing here. And then he goes on and he says, I beg you, allow me to speak to the people and again, it's our, as we're reading, it's kind of hard to put ourselves back there, but let's picture what had just happened. Here's Paul, uh, probably not the most imposing figure, and he had just been beaten almost to death by a mob. So here he is, bruised, bleeding, maybe limping at this point. Uh, there's an angry mob saying, "Put him! take him away, take him away, take him away. And Paul goes to this commander and he says, I want to talk to them. <laughs> That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Normal people would say, get me as far away from these guys as possible. But as we know, the Apostle Paul is not a normal man. When Paul sees a mob, the first thing he wants to do is dive headfirst into it and begin preaching to them. What an amazing bravery and courage that we see in the Apostle Paul. And we see that not because he's a stupid man or anything like that, But that comes from the love which he has for his brethren, even those who hate him, who hate his message, who hate his Lord. He wants to take every opportunity that he has to share that good news with them. And we'll uh, get into that discussion next time we're here. So in conclusion, in the beginning of the final book, or, or of the final act of the book of Acts, We see a a, a small taste of the suffering and the injustice that Paul will continue to experience for the sake of the gospel. We'll see this continuing on through the rest of the book. But as Paul undergoes these sufferings, he never loses sight of the reality that the proclamation and the preservation of the gospel is far more important than his own earthly comforts. Throughout this, we will see Paul putting the gospel above himself. Uh, We see Paul willing to go to Rome and, in fact, even face death, if only it would give him another opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, For Paul, being a Christian was not a comfortable experience. But in our day we can oftentimes have the expectation that being a Christian will be, that it should be. And oftentimes, we even choose our own comfort over doing what God has called us here to do. And we can easily deceive ourselves when something does go wrong that we must have done the wrong thing as a result. If we were in Paul's place, it'd be very easy for us to say, oh, I must have." D- if so many people are upset at me for what I'm doing, maybe, maybe I'm the one who is wrong. And we can get that idea too. When we try to do something for the sake of righteousness, when we try to share the gospel with our hard neighbor or family members, and we get a negative response, we may think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have come on so strongly. Oh, maybe uh, I shouldn't worry about it. And we, we, we go back to that place of, of comfort. But we see that Paul does not have that. And I pray that we would have some of that courage that the Apostle Paul has. Something else we see is that the unbelieving world rejects the message Not because the message is wrong, not because the message is uh, nonsensical or anything like that, but rejection ultimately comes from their sinful and rebellious hearts. There are many excuses that people make in order to reject the message of the gospel. In Paul's case, they sought his death on a baseless claim that he broke the rules. Jesus was rejected because the people looked at him and they said, Oh, you're not following the traditions of the elders, so uh, you're not one who's worth listening to. In our day, there are all kinds of reasons that people reject the faith. Oh, it's, uh, it's illogical, it's unscientific. You Christians are hypocrites, why would I ever, jo- ever want to follow Jesus if you're all hypocrites? The ultimate reason for this rejection, however, ultimately boils down to a sinful nature that will grab hold of any excuse that it can to continue their rejection of God. They will do anything they can to continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But in this account, we see that through all of this, God is able to bring about deliverance in the most unexpected ways. And in this case, he does it through the Romans. The Romans, at this point in time, were by no means righteous. When someone fell into the hands of the Romans, it usually meant death. But we see, in this instance, God is able to use them to intervene and to save his life. So even as we are going out and sharing the gospel and perhaps suffering for the sake of righteousness, we can recognize that God knows what we're doing. We can recognize that God has his hand over us, that God is preserving us. We can trust that God will get us to where we need to be if we would, but, if we would do what we sang in the song Uh, just earlier this morning, if we would only trust and obey. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are indeed thankful for the example that we see in the Apostle Paul, the courage that is displayed in him. If we, again, could just have an ounce of that courage, that conviction, that love for those who are around us, who are lost, the desire to continue going back despite the wrongs that might have been committed against us, Help us, Lord, to follow the Apostle Paul as he follows Christ, recognizing that we are not alone in this world, that God is with us every step of the way. I pray that you would bless the rest of our day and week, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.